welcome to your daily game face. Good I'm morning. Dr. Kim Lannon, and I'm here with my lovely producer, <laughs> Lou Blasey. Yes. Good morning. I've taken to yelling at you this morning. <laughs> here we go. I'm, uh, yeah. See, yeah. you didn't have to yell. Yeah. I was. I was focused. Oh, you didn't hear me yell because I did yell. <sighs> you didn't yell at me this this morning. Not yet. It's good. Um, so, what a great show last week. Yeah. Really fun, and we had Jeff Shank on, and I had the best time with him. And afterwards, so many of our listeners were calling me, emailing me, texting me, asking lots of questions about how to get a hold of him and talk about money and yep. sent some people his way. So, one, I thank Jeff Shank for coming on my show. and uh, We had a discussion about it after his show this week. Oh, did you? Yes. He said you were very helpful with him oh. on his tennis serve. I was, yeah. yes. I apparently fixed him. Yes, and what I told him was, and you can correct me as, yes. as I do my amateur psychology here. Okay. What I told him was, because we had been talking about cognitive biases. Yes. And what I told him was, because he said, when I got into trouble, I'd say, you know, what would Kim do? And I said, what you did was you bypassed your cognitive biases. You right. put You put yourself outside of your own head and tried to get into a clinical position, which yes. is the whole idea of bypassing your cognitive biases. Yes. You're using her as a way to... Uh, you know, ignore your inner thoughts. Yes, and yeah. and the, in the he was missing one little piece. He was bypassing his cognitive bias to um, get to me <laughs> without me there. But then he wasn't taking it the last step. Yeah. So I gave him the last step. Oh. And so he was asking himself. I didn't get this so part for everyone of it. that's listening, he yeah. was he was having a little bit of a difficulty with his second serve. serve. And um, so basically, he was saying, "What would Kim do? What would Doctor Kim say?" But he wasn't actually then putting that piece in place and so I gave him the piece that had to change it and so the next I think it was the next day he told me he said oh my god I yeah. played tennis and I did that and it worked <laughs> I'm like see that's funny I've been meaning to bring this point up on the show for a yeah. while now because yeah. you deal in sport psychology as well as clinical psychology yes. and when I was going through the work you know as I'm going through the work that I need to do at this yeah. point in my life about myself I would often get to the point where I'd say to myself I had this as an athlete. Yeah. Why can't I do this in you know real life? Right. You know, you had these uh, the ways of getting clinical, the ways of getting um, you know getting past your thought process to being aware of your thought process. Right. And I had it all as an athlete. I was good at it. Yeah. But the thing about athleticism, I think, of playing sports is your results are quantifiable. Yes. You know, you get faster. You hit the ball harder. You hit it farther. You hit it straighter. You know, whatever it is you're trying to work on, you get quantifiable results, and that's right. so it's easy to stay on the program. Right. Well, yeah. but I, th I, so I think yes, and so I, th and I think that there's that separation out that it is quantifiable, but we can quantify in a similar way to our daily lives. But we just don't do it. Right. It's not the focus. So you know, sports are by nature really quantifiable because it's either a score or points right. or something. So there's always something measurable, tangible, you know, the SMART goal kind of thing, you know, something yeah. you go through the SMART. And so it's always there. But when And often do... you get feedback from a coach. <laughs> right. Almost immediate feedback. Right. Coach, so, so in life. You see progress. Right. In life yeah. we get that, but we don't translate it or transition it in the same exact way. And so right. that's so that's one of the reasons why I have a nice blend, I think, in my practice of being able to do sports psych with clinical psych because it's – I just teach the same thing across the board and say yeah. whether you're doing an athletic thing or you're doing yeah. life, it's the same thing. You're always in the same space um, of measurement. So is it observable, measurable, tangible, something that you can say, oh, there's accomplishment, there's progress, there's something there. So that you're essentially coaching yeah. yourself. Um, 
So but it's, it's just it, it, all these principles that you need to carry forward, not living in the past, right. not being in the future, being in the moment. Right. Uh, you know, obviously you have to have a plan a little bit for the future, but you're not thinking about last week's game and this week. Right. You can't. Right. Because it's going to sink you. It's a great life lesson, but you never as you have it as an athlete, but you don't right. carry it forward into your life. And because I think I think that people just don't equate. I mean, this is my experience of just talking to people over all these years of, of doing this is people don't equate sport and life in the same way. Yeah. And they're exactly the same. Yeah. Everything that you that's why starting kids young in sports is such an enormously beneficial thing for their life because it sets them up for all of the life disciplines that really need to be right. there. You know, structure, guidance, um, uh, flexibility, uh, you know, stre strategy, planning, organization, uh, development of yeah. self. I mean, it has all those pieces and more and more and more. And then... And it has what I think is the key thing to give kids, which is a link of action and consequence. Yes. Sports gives you that. Yes. You know, yeah. you mess up, there's a consequence. Right. You do well, there's a consequence. A consequence it's a positive right. consequence. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and that's why it's I, the I most think... important lesson. It's one I think we bypass more, more and more. Well, yeah, and I think that when people, you know, parents, you know, and it's not a judgment. It's just that I think that parents are disservicing their kids when they say, "Well, my kid isn't athletic." It, it's irrelevant if they're athletic, you know. And if you can't see me right now, I'm air quoting the athletic thing. Yep. It's all kids just need to be exposed to the experience base of sports. Yep. It doesn't matter what sport, even if it's, you know, kicking the ball in kickball. And, and there's teams of kickball, even adult kickball out sure. there. I don't care yeah. what it is. It's just a matter, a matter of getting yourself in that structure so you know what it's like to play with a team. And there's no I and there's, there's you know, that, that leadership quality. And there's so many great things that you can quantify. Yeah, but that to, whole cycle. a good life lesson. That whole cycle of being in a six-year-old soccer game and making a key mistake or falling down or something. Yes. And you get a consequence and dealing with it, processing it in your mind, right. coming back and going the next week. That whole cycle is, is a valuable lesson. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and it's also, you know, I mean, there's lots of pieces that go into that. But what a great life lesson early in life of how to recorrect, yep. redirect. Um, have good, hopefully good positive feedback around it. Um, it's With a, relatively small consequences. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's just a, it's just a life lesson, a moment moving forward. Yeah. So, so I'm so glad that Jeff told you about that. Yeah. I'm very glad. I know that he talked to me a little bit quickly and said that he did try it and it worked and yeah. it was, it was really good. Did he tell you the technique that I told him to do? I don't know. Something about he, he, he was telling me what his problem was with the second serve, which was he's deliberately trying to slow it down. Right. Yeah. So and he's working. So when people do that in sports. And I told them to, when that happens, it takes the activity from cognitive, associative to cognitive. Right. So yeah. when you're, which when messes you're overthinking you up. the technical piece yeah. of it, your body already knows how to do it. So if you practice, I mean, if you're brand new at a sport and you don't know how to do something, that's different. Yeah. But if you're someone who is like he is, who's practiced over and over and over again and knows how to do it and then starts getting critical of the actual technical spot of the of the item that he's working on, then he's going to get worse. It's kind of right. I was just listening on the way into Maddie in the morning and mm -hmm. Matt Siegel was talking about his golf swing and how he was going out today to buy a brand new. This equates to what I was talking yep. about, Jeff. He, he was going out to buy a new golf club today and i was giggling in the car going he's gonna go out and buy a new golf club because he thinks that the golf club's gonna make his his, his swing better, swing better. Yeah. and then all of a sudden he said the exactly yeah. basically like i think my swing will be better but i'm gonna still go to the driving range and i'm still gonna hit it the same way and then you know they were yeah. all laughing and i was in my head saying what they were saying is just you're gonna get out there and 
it's not this it's not the club it's you right <laughs> it's you it's you it's you it's gonna be the well, person that's doing I, the thing so same with jeff and poor jeff he's not here but we're talking about him but yeah. it's the same thing he gets in his head just like most athletes right. do they get in their head about the technical piece instead of relying on the body um, motion body memory movement memory right. muscle memory all those things and then instead of just being like present focused in the zone yep. they take themselves out and as soon as that happens it per- paralyzes you to do the performance yeah. that you're looking for I told him, I gave him, I equated it to him the cognitive associative thing. I said, ask the golf partner sometime whether he inhales or exhales on his backswing and watch yeah. that screw him up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you take, you take this activity that's muscle memory that you've trained that you want to be relatively associative and you just get him thinking about it and that, right. that'll just screw everything up. Exactly. So what's interesting, so from personal experience, so when I play golf, I don't... <laughs> When I don't like telling people what to do for a living. So if you, you know, yep. do you play golf? I can't remember if you play golf. I haven't passed. I don't. Okay. So yeah. you're not. Okay. But and then you I know had how kids. you get paired with yeah. people. First of all, I don't like getting paired with people. So I try to make yep. sure I go out so that I can, because what happens to me, and I'm my own worst enemy in this. So here's the sports psychologist person and clinical person. Yep. When I go out and people find out what I do for a living Forget and then it. start talking yeah. to me about it while I'm playing, what do you think happens to my game? Yeah. It goes. Yeah. It's gone. <laughs> Yep. Right. And I know it's going to happen. So I purposely do not talk about my profession. And people always ask because most of the time I play with men. You know, we're out on the course. There's very, you know, so everyone always says, what do you do? Yep. Oh, I hate that question. I'm like, uh, and I have a variety of interesting answers. Well, just leave answers the sports that, out. That I just kind <laughs> of brush yeah. through, but yeah. inevitably it comes out and then there goes my game. So I try to hold off until almost the end yep. of the game. <laughs> the rounds so I don't have to mess up my game because I do the same thing and I know it's coming I've gotten you know over 15 years I've gotten really good at trying to get away from it but I know that it's there it's kind of like coming up to the you know the fourth or fifth hole on one of the country clubs yep. that I play and I know because so in my Kim. head it's going to go over the abyss and yeah. there goes the ball so I use a bad ball in my mind oh really yeah you do, oh I'll you take can't out do a junk that. ball you can't I, do that oh I do I do I, but I know it that's See, the worst thing in the world awareness yeah. is key and, and a, when I have gotten really good over the summer not planting inside the abyss of, yep. of the ravine then i won't take out a bad ball but at the beginning of the season i go right in my head absolutely you know i have to you know practice what i preach so i go right in my head and i'm like oh there's it's gonna come up and it's literally the shortest hole i could I, there's no reason if that ravine wasn't there but it's that mental yep. thing that there's the ball and i don't want to lose my really good balls so i'm gonna play with a crappy ball yeah but you just it's self-fulfilling prophecy it's exactly just, yeah, yeah but i'm here to tell you that i have to do the same work you know we're, it's a constant um awareness and i'm you know and, and so instead my technique for that is i know the hole's coming i get up i now try to make sure i don't use a junk ball i get over it and just do and usually that works but yep. if i start thinking about it and i get in you know into my head between the five inches between ear to ear. Right. And that's what I was saying about, you know, Jeff. Jeff was in his head doing right. lots of n- naughty talking to himself about his his sw- his, his swing, his um, serve. Yep. And so I gave him a, cu- a couple techniques. Same techniques that work with me when I walk up to that tee box and go, there goes that ball right <laughs> in the ravine. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, or a water hazard comes up. And people notoriously do that. You know, serves, you know, you have that in volleyball, tennis, golf. You know, all those types of individualized where you have to do your mental game, yep. so to speak. I have a kid that um, is an excellent golfer, and he he's actually uh, a, a child prodigy of 
of golf. Um, he works. He's done some caddying for like a little bit of caddying, like on the fly for Phil Mickelson and stuff. And his dad nice. knows his dad really yeah. well. And um, he's so funny because he has a he has a ritual, and he he walks up to the tee box and he you know does a ritual like most golfers, right? Sure. And, and then it sets him up and he goes. Now it's interesting because when he feels really comfortable and he's not doing that, so some holes he'll do that and some holes he won't. He'll walk up and just hit the ball and it's like amazing. So when you ask him the difference, and this is a story that was told to me, when they asked a, a person asked him, why did you not do it on that hole but you did it on that one? And he was like, well, because I didn't think about it because I just walked up and did it. And yep. it was beautiful. Yep. So, I mean, here he is, and I think he's 14, 15 or 14 yeah you're doing the same kind of thing already you know right through that and he's that ritual is a checklist that ritual is a checklist yes you're just threat generating through the whole thing don't right. do this don't do that don't right. make sure you don't do this make sure right. you don't do and, that right because you have it you know it's it's i i i liken it to the superstition you know you walk out because i have a ritual too and i know that if i overdo the ritual i have yeah. to step back from the tea box and then come back to the tea box because you can overdo it. Or if I underdo it, then... But if you ask the question the other way, why do you do the ritual instead of why didn't you do the ritual? Mm -hmm. If you ask someone why they do the ritual, they'll almost always tell you, so I won't do X. Right. Well, it's right. Threat it generating. Settles the, it settles yeah. the mind. It keeps your yeah. mind clear is what essentially it does because you're going through your checklist. So it's keeping you, it's like step one, step two, step three, swing, hit, go. Yeah. And, and it's, it's But it's, just, also putting your, it's also putting your greatest fear front and center. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do this so I won't slice. Right. Well. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it. So. Because the mind it, doesn't. The mind doesn't make judgment. The mind manifests. Oh yeah. So the the mind doesn't know a slice is bad. Oh, he's thinking slice. Here we go. Right. Yeah. Right, and you can usually tell. So, like yep. when I go out with, you know, and so when I, this is one of the cool perks of, of doing sports psych, is I get to go out on the courses with my players that I'm coaching, you know, yep. in mental toughness and awareness, and, all that, and I can tell when it's going to go bad. Yep. I can tell if we're working on, you know, a drive. I can tell if we're working on short game or we're working on putts, or you know, I can tell if someone's going to have the yips just by what they've done or not done in their ritual, and I can see the difference in. The benefit of doing psychology is you get to be a really good read on people just right. in general, their body language. And you can see the body language change right before something either, you know, a yip comes in, in golf or something yep. happens that is just a choke or, you know, someone takes the backswing and then, oh, you can see it coming. And, you know, the hand turnover doesn't happen and it's going to slice or shank or yep. and it's it's right there. Um, I was going to you just triggered me a couple of seconds ago. Remember Nomar Garcia Pera? Sure. You remember his ritual? Lots of rituals. The, yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to be so fascinated watching him with his his glove ritual and his hand, yeah. you know, and his Velcro, Velcro off, Velcro on, Velcro off. And I, and he had he had a very specific pattern. And at times I would like he's going to cut off all the circulation to his <laughs> hand because he pull it so tight. But yeah. um, never got to talk to him about it. But what a fantastic very specific ritual that is so front and center that always comes to mind of like how that always got him into the zone yeah. for himself. And that's what people do. That struck me as more frenetic than overthinking. That was just, that was just, that struck me as energy release. Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, it, well, so, so that's what ritual, but rituals are that that's, yeah. it's a way of releasing the energy and the, or the, you could call it the negative energy or the, um, or the, you know, the anxiety pieces, the things that are in the way just mm -hmm. to get them out because you've done the things that make you feel soothed enough. It's self-soothing behavior to make right. you feel comfortable enough to be 
at the level you were at, at that elite level or whatever level. But, but I kind of differentiate that Nomar, which you're talking about, yeah. with a guy like David Price with yeah. runners on base. Yep. You know, yep. And, and how he would change mentally. Yes. Nomar, I think I think what was happening with Nomar with the ritual at the plate was I don't think there was any thought process at all. That was just nervous. <laughs> that was just nervous energy. <laughs> well, see, well, just, I don't know. It's kind of the way it wore yeah, up, you wore it off. I'm going to have to go back today yeah. and look at tape. So, yeah. because, I, I mean, the way that I... Uh, I didn't get the impression he was going through a list in his head while he was doing that. See, I, so I think he was. And, and I bet he didn't even know what his ritual was. I bet if you asked him. No, I think no, I think he did. You he did? does because I've yeah. seen things in the past of him talking about his. People have asked him about his ritual. Yeah. Um, and I think at one point, and I could be wrong about this, if I recall correctly, there was something he did talk about that, um, it was it had become so habitual, because and yeah. so it was just part of of going up to bat. It was going yeah. up to do whatever because that was just part of it. So I think in that way it was frenetic in the that, but it was based on the fact that it was a way to channel his energy initially. But mm -hmm. now I'm going to have to go back and look at some yeah. of his tape on it because now I'm fascinated with what you just said because I have to know. Yeah, it's funny that you brought it up because that's that's one ritual that I kind of looked at and I, that didn't bother me. I mean, you could you could start to see athletes get into their rituals. Like David Price is a good example right. and see what, right. you know, something's going on. His, his right. head's cooking. Right. You know, right now. Right. And Nomar just, to me, it, I, it never struck me as a... Um, as a clinical issue, it struck me as just a nervous guy up there, just it, just well, draining it, off energy. It wouldn't necessarily be a clinical issue, and it's not. I wouldn't say that was pathological, right? Yeah. It wasn't a negative. It wasn't something negative. It right. was something. So okay, so if we go look at gymnasts, me being a gymnast, right? Um, so when when you go up to the bars, you know the uneven parallel yep. bars. So if anyone's ever watched gymnastics, there's chalk. Right. It just look people are like, oh, chalk, whatever, yeah. whatever you're watching on TV. But it's not. It's chalk. But it is a very ritualistic thing for each of us. And it became very habitual. So there's a way that you like your bars. So this is going to be so gross that I'm going to out this. <laughs> so so the so the grips are made out of certain things and, you know, certain material and leather and so on and so forth. And if you're using like the one with the dowel, you you have to wet it. So you spit. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. <laughs> So Talking gross, baseball, right? there's a lot of spitting. So you do a little spit, or you have a spray. We, we try to encourage spray bottles so we don't spit, but, yep. yeah, whatever. So spit or spray bottle, and then you get the chalk going. You put it in between, all around, and then you get a cake section of the bars where you're grooved in that is to you. So every time, if you have ever seen watching on TV, a lot of times they used to scrape down the bars with, um, like, sandpaper for the next person because you'd come on and you'd get it all wet up for... <laughs> And you get, they got to prepare their bars because right because yeah. it was a ritual of oh, how yeah. you got in the groove. So I I certainly had it. All my teammates had it. Most gymnasts have it. Um, bars have changed over the time. I mean, back when I first started, this is going to date me. They were just regular wood bars. Then they went to fiberglass and yeah. there were spring rails and all these things. But nonetheless, you still got your groove with the chalk patterns in yeah. it because that's how you flew on the bars you got into those certain grooves and that was all by feel of how you set your glove up so similar to nomar that's how i always thought of it is that oh it's the similar yep. thing is because you would it's the same kind of bracketing around the wrist undo redo undo yep. redo and and do it so but that strikes me as and the, the title of the show is game face that that, right. stri that strikes mm -hmm. me as putting on a game face uh, hockey players you know we all that whole process of putting on the uniform right the process of walking off the street, getting in the locker room, 
you talk to your friends, you have a few laughs, everyone's everyone's having a good time, music's playing, stuff like that. And as you get closer to game time, as the uniform goes on, things get quieter, they get more intense. That's the process of putting on your game right. face. Right. And by the time the uniform's done and you're hitting the doorway in your skates, you're in, a, you're in an entirely different place than you were when you walked in out of the parking lot. Absolutely. That's the whole process. Because yeah. you're doing like a transitional shift right. in your head over to what it is to be on your game. Right. So, and and that's, I mean, and that's you know, what I do with people in their daily life, going back to like the daily life, is trying to get people into a pattern of how to get in their game face on a daily basis right. so they're not in a slump or they're not shanking life or slicing it, so to speak. Um and and it's the same crossover from athletes to regular everyday people yeah. or both. I mean, it's the same concepts, and people don't realize. You know, people go, "I'm not an athlete, so it doesn't it doesn't apply." Yes, it does. Oh. It all applies. They're back and forth. They're all life life journey goals. They're all the same. Right. They're all rituals. They're all habits. They're all things that either work for you or don't. And and it's a good pattern to get into. So that gets you on. It's you know, it's like when you get up in the morning. What are the first five things you do? Right. They set you up for the day, and people don't look at it like that. It's the same kind of thing as if you're getting ready to go into the, you know, the hockey rink. You know, you get up in the morning, and you go to the bathroom, and, you know. It's funny. I've got very cognizant of my morning ritual lately because of my dog. Right. And he's, if I do the routine, if I do the routine normally, I can get out of the house. Right. If I don't do the routine normally, he gets anxious, and there's separation anxiety, and he gets really you know, you almost have do to force him to stay in house. Do you need to come and do some behavioral therapy for you and your dog? For the dog, at least. I don't know about me. <laughs> the dog, at well, least. Well, I don't know. You know, because yeah. animals are reflections. I know. Of I understand. Us, yeah, Lou. he was like this before he got to me. So oh, oh, of course. I can't, it's I can't not take, your fault. I can't take credit for all of it. But. Oh my God! So, so, so if it if it's it throws you off when you don't have the ritual. It throws him off. Him off. And I want to keep him calm. Right. So I'm so that does throw you so, off because you want to yeah. keep him calm, and it probably yeah. bothers you that it, it, if he's not ready. So if I'm worried about it, energy levels up, his energy's level up. I got I got to keep in the right frame of mind because, as, as you know, we, we trigger off each other. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and that's and that's and so that if if anyone's listening to that particular piece, it's that's what happens every day in life in general. Yeah. You're always triggering off of something sure. that has gone, the anomalies on the board, the little blips on the screen, the something that's like made you go left when you wanted to go right or right. up when you wanted to go down or whatever. So it's it's if you can get into those patterns and now I'm not not like suggesting people get into obsessive compulsive patterns because that's a whole different thing. No. This is just your normal everyday healthy adapting to how do I keep myself motivated? How do I keep my game face on? How do I psych myself up and stay like present and going forward? Um well, this I is about this is about understanding your role and the outcomes. Yes. Because I think most what people... What you have control over, what you don't have exactly, control over. Exactly. Because right? I think most people try to affect the role and the outcome that they don't have. Right. And that's exhausting yeah. and self-defeating. And that creates more anxiety. Right. Right? I, I mean, so... And they overlook the fact that the conversation went wrong because you came into it wired. Right. Right? Exactly. You know, you paid no attention to your role in it. Right. And you... To, you thought everything was about what you couldn't control. Well, you kind of derailed it because you came in, you know, I kind of derail him in the morning because I get nervous about leaving on him. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it's because you have these preset expectations yep. that that are there that you just don't have control over. I was having a conversation on Saturday with a client about, let's say, five things, five very large items that are going on in this person's life. Mm -hmm. and. After they went through this whole thing, you know, you know, the big, ah, oh, my gosh, everything, you know. And then I was, 
sometimes I feel bad that I'm calm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, so what do you have control over? That was my only question out of the gate on it. Yeah. And, you know, it feels so pale in comparison to the big mountain that I was just put right. in front of me. But my response was, well, what do you have control over? You know, I knew the answer already. It yeah. was nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Right? But I wanted her to see that where they, where all these problems were, they were now out of her control. So she was worrying about things that had no end point at this point because they, she didn't have any spot to put anything in. So she couldn't do anything. So the ritual that becomes unhealthy in this case, which is sort of the, you know, the opposite side of what we've been talking about so far, is that she's ritualistically just doing the threat generating in her head of what if, what if, what if, what if, the pattern of ritual yeah. of, of, the, of the practice of what if. So it's similar to the nomar or the golf swinger or whatever. It's the over and over pattern of negative, 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 I have no control, trying to control for what you can't control by overthinking it and thinking that somehow that's going to affect the outcome. Right. And it doesn't. Yep. And people know that intellectually. I mean, most people know that, but they continue to do it because it gives you the illusion of control. And when you have the illusion or the delusion of control, yep. right, it makes you feel better, but it really doesn't. And you also know that intellectually. But how do you then break it? And that's it's it's about really looking at and believing that at the end of the day, right now, on these particular items, I have no control because that's in that person's ballpark and that's over there. And that one has no resolve until the end of August. Right. And that one. Ha so looking at the facts of where do I really sit in this so that you can sort of back yourself away and go, OK, I'm OK. Yep. But the corollary to uh, what I started this with, which I had all these things as an athlete and had mm -hmm. trouble putting them in real life. Right. All these people, everybody has these things. And where you put it in their terms is, for example, what would you tell your son? What would you tell your sister? about this situation. And right. people will almost always universally tell you they're good at giving advice. Right. They're not good at living well. Right. You know, they can solve other people's problems, and that's because you're not emotionally invested right. in their problems or as emotionally invested right. in their problems. And well, so this is the piece you have to try to defeat. You have to be able to rise above it and take a more clinical viewpoint of what's going on. Right. Well, so it's, it's stepping back and have, like, an observing ego. So you're and I use the word ego on purpose here mm -hmm. because it's your reality. It's stepping back and looking at the observer as if your reality is from an observer standpoint. The observer versus, position. I love versus it. Versus yep. you're in it. Mm -hmm. So when you're the center and you're in it and everything's revolving around you, you're just a spinning top that you can't really see straight. But when you step out of that circle and you observe in and say, okay, like what you just said about um, what, would my, what would I say to my friend, my sister, my brother, my whatever – and then applying it to yourself by stepping back and going, oh, yeah, even though you know that you'd give great advice to someone else, okay, what would be the benefit of you actually taking your advice and trying that? And, right. then, and then being able to see that. And that typically will help a person take that baby step out to say, okay, because it's so overwhelming because people look at the, again, going back to the hoarding house example I've given a couple of times, is looking at the whole house going, I have to clean the whole thing, and then going, I'm paralyzed, I can't do it because it's too overwhelming, versus the baby step of, we're gonna just clean the front stoop. Yep. We're just gonna we're just gonna just make the entryway open so the door can open and that's it. And then when you start backing it down and giving a realistic observing view of the situation, then it's not so overwhelming. Because then you have that's all you have control over. You can't get inside the house if you can't get to the door. Right. Right? Yep. So clear the door and that's all you have to do, and then the door can open. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, I went right to the visual reporting <laughs> houses in my head and thinking I've opened some doors and can't open them. <laughs> yeah, the the thing the observer position gives you as well, because if you ask somebody the question that you asked, which is if you applied that to your own life, you know, what would be the problem? And they will give you a problem. 
They will give you a threat that they generated, and they're unable to vet that threat that they generated. Whereas when you're doing it for somebody else, someone will tell you, well, if I do that, this is going to happen. No, that's not going to happen. That's not real. That's just just the fear you have. Right. And people can't have trouble doing that with themselves. Differentiating the threats that they generate is real as realistic or not realistic well right so that so that's the technique i've been i've talked to you about before is using you know my three r's which are being realistic reasonable and rational and asking yourself when you start getting all that that worked up about it is are you being rational are you being realistic are you being reasonable is that what you're thinking about any of those things yeah and not even nine times out of ten typically (laughs) ten times out of ten it i can be like nope it's not. That's yeah. not reasonable. And people will try to find reason. But the reason, so the reason, here's the technique of that is it has to be fact. People will give you all kinds of reasons that will prove that they're right about this thing happening, but they're not based in fact. They're all these speculations, right. assumptions, presumptions, um, you know. Threats. Fantasy, Generated delusions, threats. all yeah. these things yeah. that are beliefs yeah. that have no basis in reality. So when you really challenge it and say, but that's not fact. That's not fact. That's not fact. And then finally, a person can get to that point to see, oh, I'm really doing this other thing over here. But people, we're so trained. You know, and it's not even just um, cultural to the United States. This is like human nature in general is that we threat generate. Now, I don't know if that's for like particular cultures like that are, you know, maybe Middle Eastern or whatever. But I know that the general like Western um, population and us, and you know, that's what it is. Well, we we socialize to be the threat generator. It's primal, are, right? It's evolutionary. Right. The exactly. people who didn't threat generate don't have any ancestors. <laughs> exactly. Right. We're the ancestors of people who threat generate. Yeah, right. right. It's it's the bear in the back of the cave. Right. The people who always thought there was a bear in the back of the cave survived. The people who didn't always think there was a bear in the back of the cave occasionally ran into a bear. Right. And didn't. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it was, but it's occasional. And that's the thing is yeah. it's, it's the threat generation of, you know, where do you take something realistic and then really tr- stretch it to something that's crazy and over the top and so far fetched? Like, for, like, so I have a client that came in. Um, she, for years, from childhood, was worried about storms. Right. So storms. Yep. And so, you know, the storm that happened in Iowa that wiped out the crops and all that stuff the other day. Yeah. Now, this really stirred her up because, you know, yeah. and I, and her her faulty thinking went to that happened. All the crops are going to be like she went right to all everything. It's yeah. coming. Everything, you know, and we had to go through step by step of all the facts of. Where was this? This is Iowa. What kind of things and storms happen in Iowa? What's the likelihood of those things happening here? What's yeah. so all the baby steps around the reality of, you know, what what happens? But she went from that to the world is going to come to an end because that storm. Yeah, and that's well. The so problem it, here is what makes that so insidious is there's you can rationalize that to to an extent. Sure. In other words, Iowa produces. Most of our pork it produces produces a lot of what feeds the United States. Right. You know, so you could sit there and create a scenario where it might be a pro- especially in 2020 because sure. everything else around you is is on fire. So why why wouldn't that be on fire? <laughs> I know. I just went into my head and had all these thoughts like fly through, going, "Oh, we could have a whole discussion about the 700 million things that are like yeah. threat generating to people right now." Right. Right. So yeah, you could. Well, you could find that, but there's. So again, that. But that's what to, makes it insidious, and the, right. But you still have to fight it. It's like, well. Okay. So you have to fight it, yeah. but the fact is, is that we're not going to starve because Iowa had a storm. Right. Yeah. And and so it's like, you know, and and 
and the light you have to look at the likelihood of this this and this and, and being able to just have it and it's more about just training the thought process to you know generate kind of like what i did with jeff is like training the thought process to go with the last little piece is you're doing all this stuff and you're bringing yourself right to the door where you know and you're aware but then what yep. then how do you then flip it around to make it work for you so that's the same thing as people will threat generate and do all these things and it becomes insidious because they don't know how to take it and turn the alternative around and say okay this is really this is where we are rea realistically here what's reasonable about this you right. know i mean there's this isn't going to just make us fall apart so but she went right to that place of you know nuclear yeah. war because yeah. you know the storm is that i mean that's where she goes yeah. and and many people do that i know it sounds crazy but yeah. maybe you wouldn't be surprised but so many people go from like you know, that little pebble in the shoe and everything's a mountain and and that's what anxiety is. It's like yeah. constant. Everything's Mount Kilimanjaro. Everything. Well, there's a fuse. Everyone has a fuse, right? There's right. stuff. There, there's right. certain things that if you touch this stuff, uh, they have very little guard against it. You know, and everyone's got a, a certain thing. For her, it's storms and right. food chain, apparently. Right. But, you know, everybody has their things, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think, and I think the thing that comes to mind, and this kind of relates to the whole sports thing and, and athletes and everybody's rituals, is that, is that your experience base or your exposure base of what you're around, you know, your culture, your demographic, your family, yeah. your your environment, your sure. your ecology system, drives that. So I know I notice in practice, like if I'm working with athletes, that there's a very specific insidiousness to what their thought process is versus if I'm working with kind of the general population on a daily basis that's very dependent on, you know, this is kind of normal, but, it, you know, where they're from, who they were raised by, how, what environment, what their socioeconomic status is. All those factors are so... Yep. It's obvious, but it's not to most people when they're sitting in front. They're like, I don't know why I feel this way. And when you put their whole history and their 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 exposure base together, you go, well, I know why. And you're yep. still it's you're still sitting in it, and therefore you still have this going on because the threat generation is sitting around you. It's kind of like when we've talked about addiction. Yeah. People go into recovery. They go into a place where they're not exposed and they have the exposure base that's healthy. Then they get told, okay, you've done 90 days. Now you're clean, sober, and yay. And now you're going back to your exposure base. Yep. Okay. But nothing changed about your exposure, exposure base. So we hope that in 90 days or 180 days, your mental state around that exposure base has gotten enough wrapped around it to push it out so that you're not pulled back in it. Yeah, without Same really working on it all else. that much, yeah. You what? Without really working on it all that much either. Right, because the, you're working because on your the exposure detox base and, isn't working. Yeah. You, while you're in rehab, yeah. while you're recovering, your exposure base typically is not getting better. Right. You have to come back and be able to have the armor up around it to be able to protect yourself from all the things that aren't in your reality, aren't in your space that have to be. Yeah. So it's so that's similar to what an athlete has to do or, or anybody else when their exposure base is, you know, say like a negative coach. If they have a negative coach, a mean coach, a yelling coach, a de uh, demoralizing, that's the way they coach. And then they go out and they don't do well. And then they go to a really great coach, get great coaching and like, oh, like at a summer camp. And then they come back and they're like all fired up and they come back to the really terrible coach. Right. They go right back down the slide because the coaching didn't change. The person did. Right. But they don't have enough time under their belt from the exposure of the good stuff to keep it going. Right. Same thing. Yeah. So, and that, so that you could, you know, apply that to working environments with your boss. 
um, you know, employment things or even families in general, like working, you know, you, you go yeah. off and do things with, you know, one parent and other parents not like that. You have authoritarian versus authoritative. So it's all through life and understanding how much of a threat generation that is or how much you have control over the fact that if you are aware that that's going on, how do you then maneuver yourself around it in a healthy way so you don't have to be impacted by it because you feel like you don't have a sense of control over it. And often, little kids have no control over that. So I see lots of little kids coming in and oftentimes, and I've said this to you, is that it's the parents who should be in the office with yep. me, not the kids, because the kids are like, well, I have this, this, and this going on, and this is what happens. The parents will endorse that that's in fact what's going on, but it's being driven by the parents, and so then they're like, fix my kid. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask you. with that, because the problem is you. <laughs> I was just going to ask you how often you run into this, because I see this so often just on the street where it's yeah. like, why is my kid acting that way? And you look at the person, you kind of cock your head, it's like, he's you mm -hmm. <laughs> you know he's reacting that way because that's the way you react right but they don't see it or they don't see what's going on they, they tell you stories about their parent right com complaining about their parent and exhibit the same qualities but right. don't see it right you know it's because i guess it's because of the water you swim in right but i often see it with kids and parents where people are talking about their kids and particular behaviors they have why does he do that and you, right. you just have to bite your tongue so it's because right. that's you right you know he got it from you that's that's the way you act well, it's that observing ego. It's the being able to step out and see that, wow, that's, you know, that's your behavior. That's what you're teaching your kid. That's what yeah. you're enforcing and reinforcing. And, you know, and you see that. I mean, they so, complain about their son. They say, my son just always tells everybody what the, he thinks they want to hear. Right. Uh, yeah, really? Uh -huh. Where do you get that from? <laughs> you know, it's exactly. just so funny. Yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. Or you have, or you, you know, I mean, you could use any example. I mean, you know, you have people that would be like, oh, my, you know, my kids, they sleep all day and they don't do anything. They play video games. Hmm. Yeah. And you look, it's this, it's monkey see, monkey do. Right. Like you, they do social learning theory. It's very obvious. It's kids will match exactly what they see until they see something different or the pain in the moment becomes great enough for them to say i don't want to be like that yeah it's you know if, if my parents are in the comfort of of doing whatever then that's good enough for me and therefore that's what they do and the parents yeah. are they perpetuate that you know i mean we've talked about that way back in the shows in the beginning right. about eating and, and obesity and children and, and teenagers is you know you don't usually see really, you know, um, healthy, fit parents. Typically, there's always, you know, when you see obese children or heavier set kids, there's usually heavier set parents. Right. Why? Right. Yeah. Because it's it's the modeling. It's the modeling of, of that. Um, you know, when you see healthy, healthy kids and you have the other extreme, you see healthy, healthy kids and healthy, healthy parents. I mean, I have a parent that's a personal trainer and her kid fluctuated all the way up through from when I saw him at seven, eight years old. And now he's in his twenties. I saw him go up and down in his weight because she's teeny, very health conscious and always had that food, poor food relationship. So his is up and down and oh. she's super healthy, but his was cause he just, because she didn't of, have to pay attention to her food. Do what? Because she didn't have to pay attention to the quality of the food? Cause, um, no, she well. just was really obsessive about okay. the quality of the food. Yeah, so, so he was she rebelling was, he at wanted, times. Right, so yeah. he was, uh, you know, sometimes he was up, sometimes he yeah. was down. And so that was, you know, that was the other extreme. So you have that. So it's you know, obviously balance and finding the balance in these things. But then again, it's the ritual. It's like you become a pattern ritual of your environment. 
right? So it's, yeah. it's similar to what we said in the beginning, but just on a broader scope of like family patterns or people doing certain things that become so habitual that it just is normal. Like you, you know, you here's, you know, it's a smell in the room. You don't smell it anymore because it's now there. Right. It's, it doesn't, you know, there's garbage loading up to the ceiling in the hoarding house and that, that's fine. That's yep. normal. Yep. And, you know, and people just get a blind eye or a blind nose or a blind ear to all of it. And, yeah. and then don't realize that those are the rituals that they have in their life. They're not helpful or working for them and can't figure out like why things are falling apart. Right. Yeah. It's not even self-aware, you know, and this is where awareness becomes so key, you know, right. be, being self-aware of the, whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is the problems are, um, being aware of it that you, you can't get anywhere until you understand, again, because you get those parents, why is he like that? Right. Because you're like that. Right. And they're not even aware enough of themselves, not even self-aware enough to know that's the way they are. Exactly. That's what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, because they separate themselves out. And a lot of, you know, I... I I mean, this is hopefully people can see this and maybe get some help from this, just this little piece is that parents so many times, Lou, are um, in that mode of not my kid. That's, the, you know, not, not my kid. My yep. kid's fine. There's nothing wrong there. You know, you know, I do that, but my kid doesn't do that. And you can see it. Right. And it's like, yes, it's there. And they're like, yeah, but it's okay. They're just kids. Yeah. yeah. You're like, but it's setting them up. Yep for this thing whatever the thing is it's coming and you know it's i and i always go back to either the addiction issues or eating issues or you know unmotivation um or demotivation it's it's you know it's okay well you how can... much of addiction from a from kids comes from is based in the not my kid oh my gosh because the early intervention isn't there the right. the early awareness isn't there the right. the talks it's just like no right. not my kid yeah, there's a very specific, yeah. um, by and large, of course, there's the anomalies on the board that aren't generalizable. But generalizability here is that, you know, there's a very specific parenting style and type of being in the world as a child's being raised that leads to these things, either, mm -hmm. you know, a, over addiction, yeah. you know, too much of something, right. food, booze, drugs, cigarettes, chocolate, yeah. food, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, it's that exposure base it becomes a ritual to lead a person down the path to keep doing it and it were and it's the it becomes the thing that you know if you always have known that you know you eat pasta every day and you drink a liter of coke and you mm. sit all day well that's a ritual yep it works for my mom and dad so it should work for me right or it works for my mom and dad so it works for me so it works for my kids like it's yeah. and you can see it that you know that's what we did we got a, intergenerational around these yeah. things that's what the family did we got a bag of doritos and watched right. watched a movie right and it's like and that becomes comfort that becomes nostalgia right that becomes where you go. that's home exactly yeah. and parent and you know and so i've heard a lot over this past six months about like people will finish dinner immediately move to the television and then have popcorn and ice cream like and not just a, like a lot of families you know though and it's like within a two-hour period they've had four thousand calories and oh my gosh that's a lot on kids that are not doing well i shouldn't say not doing because there's tons of kids out there that are doing but yeah. for kids that aren't and who are gaming all day and who are sitting zooming for school and then doing nothing else and then sitting and doing that and then eating all the way till 11 12 at night and then society reinforces it. That sure. particular issue, society reinforces it mm -hmm. because we go for years talking about the bag of Doritos and the vending machine at school. Mm -hmm. 
the bag of Doritos in the vending machine in school isn't the problem. No. It's the family size bag and the liter of Coke at home. Right. That's the problem. But everyone gets to blame it on, well, if we take Doritos out of the vending machines in school, everybody will be fine. That's right. the problem. Right. Well, no, that's you're misidentifying, you're misidentifying the problem, so you have no hope of fixing it. Right, because it's the, the vending machine, because well, back 15 years ago, I was working in one of the high schools as a clinical psychologist for a year. The vending machine was a big topic around that time, and probably around that time is when that was coming out. Is yeah. that, you know, and I was like, that's the symptom of the problem. You know, shutting down the vending machine from those things. You know, there's nothing wrong with a kid having a little bag of those. It's when they go home, yeah, and that this is what they're used to. So they're just coming. It's one thing to the next to the next. There's yeah. not, you know, extra healthy op options for a kid or something like that because kids won't go to that because this is what they know. Right. You know, how many times will you go to a vending machine and pick out something healthy? You know, it's nice when they have, like, nuts and trail mix and all that stuff. But most of the time, those are the things that are still in the rack. <laughs> but the, the parents arguing about the vending machine are the yeah. parents who have the bags of chips at home. Yes. And oh the two-liter yeah. bottles of Coke. Yeah. You know, yeah, we got to get it out of the vending, yeah. vending machines at school. Yeah. Well, no, self-examine a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's hard, you know, and it's hard for people to look inward at their own patterns. I remember. Do you remember the story? There was this mother who sued McDonald's. Oh, yes. Because her six-year-old... Yes. She couldn't stop her six-year-old from getting Happy Meals because they had a toy in it. So she was petitioning McDonald's not to put the toy in I it. I had many conversations about that that particular time. I remember that because I was like, it's, it's a, not about six-year-olds. It's called Stop Going Through the Drive-Thru. It's unbelievable. It was an un, the <laughs> most unbelievable story. Right. You know? I, well, and so... I can't stop my six-year-old from getting Happy Meals. Right. Really? Right. <laughs> How right. do, does the six-year-old drive? What, what's so, the well, that brings yeah. to the it brings to a societal thing of like we're you know we don't say no to our right. kids and and you, I see this you know over the years of my practice of parents wanting to be friends versus being right. parents and losing that you know losing control by the time their kid is you know ten, eleven, twelve years old and wondering why the child's not listening or they're disrespectful and rude and then you know chalking it up to well they're they're becoming a teenager, their hormones, they're just nasty yeah. and accepting the behavior because they want the friendship so bad. Right. And you look at the the line of the of the the lineage of passed down behavior of those parents usually come from parents who were really strict or there was something like so now right. they flip the coin and they want to be the child's friend and they just want to be that way. Or it's not strict at all it's it's kind of just like very permissive and now they want to be their kid's friend because they love their relationship that they had with their parent that was their friend and now their child's running amok because but they're talking about the kid at 15 right thinking it's a 15 year old problem right. well you set the stage for that when she was nine when she was seven four <laughs> yeah Oh right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you those... can't fix fifteen-year-old problems when they're fifteen-year-old. You right. fix the fifteen-year-old problems when they're seven, eight, nine, six, seven, eight. Yeah, nine. I mean, there. So, so in psychology, we we typically go that from zero to six years old is when things are all set in motion. Mm -hmm. So by yeah, the time you're enough. six, yeah. you've pretty much got your personality personality yeah. of what's going to be where you're going and like your relationship the, with that child and the relationship right yeah. so you know in, in the case of that woman her six-year-old is running the show oh yeah yeah absolutely six-year-old is driving the bus absolutely which is not a position good position to be in and so and how many I, times you run into people with the 15 year old running the bus oh well so i have a lot of people in my you know a lot of people in my practice with that and yeah. that's really that's one of the hardest conversations that i have with parents because i have to talk to the parents about you know they're like yeah but i don't want to have them be upset <laughs> you know so and, and that's a it's a yeah. 
you know, and again, patterning, you're, you're teaching your children patterns of, well, you don't want them to be upset with you. So you give in. So they know that you're going to give in so that when you give them a consequence to this behavior, they know in two days, oh, it's not even going to last two hours because you're too upset that it's going to be right. upsetting and it's not enough. It's, the fight will be too great. Therefore, you don't want to do it because that's a, that you don't want them to hate you. Right. It's like they're going to be fine. Yeah. But people don't trust that. I mean, so it gets into all these, you know, we talk about patterns and rituals. People have gotten into this patterning in their brain spaces of cognitive biases of yep. how things are going to go and how they want them to go. And if, you know, if you're friends with your child, then it will be all good. Yeah. The, people think, and I understand why, because teenagers will fight it right. tooth and nail. They think teen teenagers don't like structure. Right. But oh, they love they, structure. And they love structure. Yeah, they'll... they'll they thrive in it. Yeah, but they'll yell at you all the way through it. Yes. And they'll fight you tooth and nail. Exactly. But in the end, they understand what it is, that right. structure is love. Right. Structure is caring. Structure is, you know... Right, but you can't all of a sudden implement that no. at 14 years old. No. It has to start way back, and that's right. what I see. You know, I see, when I get a lot of teenagers that come in at 13 to 16 years old, parents are like, I don't understand what's happened you know, they were so good when they were five and six. It's like, well, between then and now, we've, you know, and it's it's very consistent. You can see the same patterns yep. roll out and, and, and try and explain to the parent that, like, this, you can't fix all of a sudden something that's going on because now this per, this kid is in a ritual of, with you, of a very vicious cycle of, right. of you know, emotionally bankrupting you so that you will give to them yep. so that they can get ahead so that you can, it's just this Plus, over and over. in a long-term relationship, whatever it is, work, right. work, uh, parenting, uh, right. regular relationships, friendships, whatever it is, how do you feel when somebody changes the rules on you? Right. Right? So right. You've, you have this teenager who you're trying to change the behavior on, and basically what you're doing is you're changing the rules on them. Right. So they're going to rebel against it. Right. They're going to rebel against it strongly. Right, and if you don't have the fortitude emotionally yeah. for yourself to, to manage the uncomfortability of them rebelling and not being happy with you, yeah. you will lose your ground, and now that you're shaping new behavior of entitlement. Yeah. The classic behavior is in the store. If you don't settle down, we're going to leave. Right. And they never leave. Right. And the, the trick to that is you don't even have that conversation. When right. they're not settled down, you just pick them up and go. Right. Exactly. Right. You don't even you don't even do the threat. Right. You just do it and you attach the action, action to the consequence. So now when I have these conversations, right, because we're trying to change behaviors for people and, and that particular issue. And then you get in the car and you say... Then you get in a car and you say, "No, we had to leave. You 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 lost it in there." Right. We had so to leave. people. So I have people that have done that, and their biggest concern, which I do understand, because we're in this day and age, and and people are reluctant to do it. Sometimes it's because everyone's worried about DCF being called, you know, and screw and, that. Send them over. <laughs> <laughs> I well, yeah. and so I say to parents, like, yeah. you know, it's you need to do this. You need to pick your child up and get them out there like oh people because as shows gone by right people are in everybody's lane you know and you know and i've had parents come in and say oh this person in the parking lot yelled at me for like you know having picked up my child and that i was yelling at them and blah 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 and i'm like yeah but no one can walk in your shoes just yeah. do what you need to do you know if, unless you're beating the child yeah. which is obviously we're not right. going to do that right but if you can't get control and the child's like out of control you have to pick them up and get them out you of really the shouldn't way. be yelling at them either what you really shouldn't be yelling at them either well they're, they're no not... I, I don't mean from a, a societal standpoint i mean that's not an effective way to handle that like well, i said exactly. just pick them up and leave just right 
Exactly. And, and be and, dispassionate. You, you can be, as I used to put it to a parent, it's like, what if your kid came down and you said, I'm not brushing my teeth tonight? Right. You wouldn't argue with them. You wouldn't get mad. You go, what are you nuts? Go brush your teeth. Right. Very very matter of fact, very right. dispassionate. That's the way you treat these right. things. Yeah. Right. But, but so there's... Because when the, you get mad, you open negotiations. Right. Well, and, when, and then you lack the reinforcement mm -hmm. of that they will do it on their own if you continue to have the negotiations the back and forth and, and then they are no brushing teeth for years right. or, or once in a great while. It's, it's, I mean, that's the behavior that falls out because they don't become ritual mm -hmm. or patterned in a healthy behavior that's going to benefit them because it became a negotiation. Yep. It became the lack of consistency. Again, going back to sports metaphors, right? Is yep. If you don't have that consistency, if you don't have the pattern, you don't have the ritual that's going to lead you to the successful blah, 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 the hit, the serve, the swing, yep. the whatever, it's going to be poor. Same thing in, in families and same thing in getting your life on track in a daily life pattern. You know, yep. you, you can't expect that you're going to have good things happen if the entitlement comes along and you expect that others are going to do or it's going to happen for you. And the last thing you want to get into with a kid is a negotiation. Yeah. Because you'll lose every time. Right. Because they have no empathy and they have no, you know, they're very, no reason about what their needs are. Well, right. So, yeah. so there's a technique that I use with ki with parents with kids with this is that so that kids like to have control. Yep. There's nothing wrong with that because you want to sure. teach them independence. But here's how you give it to them: you always give them two choices that end in your favor, as the parents. Yep. And, you know, and parents usually, when I say that, they're like, yeah. "Wait, repeat that again." Yeah. So they, you always give them two choices that end in your favor. They're two choices; they get to choose. Right. And there's usually one that's like really great yep. and is going to be really great. And there's one that's going to be not so great, but they're going to be their choice. Yep. And usually kids, if you start that right away at the beginning of their of the issue, that's whatever comes up. Usually kids are like, oh, I have a choice. And then as right. they age appropriately graduate up, you just give them choices that are age appropriate to them. Of, and it's not necessarily about consequences. It's about you can either go to bed in 20 minutes and watch the end of the show or, you know, you can go to bed now and not watch the show at all. Yep. And, it, yep. and you know, it, basic things. But, you know, there's some really grand ones, too, that you can get into. But kids will, kids will feel more empowered, be like, fine, I'll just watch the show and I'll go to bed in 20 minutes. They'll pick the one that, you know. Yeah. You know, occasionally you get the, uh, the obstinate child that will be like, fine, I'll go to bed now. Okay. What that does that's really important is you can never appear to me my my thing was never appear to be disciplining the child right in other words you don't make it about you and what you're choosing you right. make it about the problem right and the problem that is reasonable bedtime right right so you can right. watch it you're going to bed at this time you can watch the show up until that point and stop or we don't get started right and so it does it's not about you punishing them it's not about being unreasonable it's about this show ends too late just, right. just, you know, and again, being matter right. of fact about it. You know? Well, and also what the skill is, and, and I think that sometimes people, parents are afraid of teaching kids their pa good patterns and, and rituals, is that it's it's giving um, kids critical thinking skills. Yep. And it's they're, they're life lessons without you having to sit someone down and be like, when I was your age, because that doesn't go anywhere. It's about, hey, here's a simple thing. This is what's going on right now. That show's going to end too late. I want you to go to bed in 20 minutes. Here are your choices. Yeah. You pick them. You've got a couple. And now the kid has to think through. If you start that right away early on, even when they're four, five, right. six, seven, eight, you've got a golden pattern 
for them to be able to walk that path because they're you won't have to do that over and over again because they're always they're going to start doing that on their own as they develop cognitively that oh I can I, I if I do that I could do that so I'll probably do that because that's what I'm going to be offered they'll start thinking that through on their own right. which is really great for life because they're going to think ahead of the reality of consequences that are actual right. real life stuff. Um, and that follows through. What a great pattern. That's why sports are so great. Yeah. Sports teach kids that early, like straight sports out of don't, the gate. Sports don't negotiate. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's, You have a result. You, you take an action, you have a result. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's the pattern that sets in mind. That's why I think it's such a nice um, combination of, of yeah. work that I do is because if you get a kid into sports early – that pattern just follows you right through because it just allows a child to know that, oh, if I do that, there's going to be a result. And what is the result? I don't want that result. If I don't want to, you know, if I don't want to lose, then I got to do this. If right. I want to win, I got to do this. Essentially, it comes down to that. It's like, what is your win? What is your lose? Right. And, and I think that when you see the deficited, unhealthy sides of things is when the patterns and the rituals and things have been just inconsistent, not connected, yeah. really... That's action. too much friend, too much permissiveness, too much. Yeah. It's too loose. That's and, action consequence. Right. The connection of action consequence, exactly. which sports does really well. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that, again, going back to the beginning is the disservice to not have kids in some kind of athletic thing, even if you think your kid is an athletic. You know, I, I have parents to be like, oh, I signed them up for soccer and they just couldn't they just couldn't do it. So I just we're not doing any sport. Yeah. <laughs> cringe. I'm like. Yeah. And I'm a big and I'm a big proponent of swimming. I want every person I think should it's the best skills for life <laughs> next to working. You gotta know how to swim. I mean, of all the things, it's not even having to be a sport, it's a safety thing. Like yeah. what happens and I, I have a kid yesterday that looked at me, he's twelve and he doesn't want to do swim lessons anymore and he's a pretty good swimmer. And I said, Well, you sort of need to still do that because you know, you gotta do that, you know. He's like I just won't go near water in the rest of my life. <laughs> and I was like, well, I yeah. said, what are you going to do when you, all your friends and when you're 16 want to go up to the beach and you want to hang out? He goes, I just won't go in the water. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you know, and I, and I get that, but yeah. you know, I just think that what a great skill for kids to have. Yeah. And it's a, it's an easy way to get the kids into like a social situation and so on and so forth. Right now, a lot of places aren't doing that, but I do know that outdoor swim places are doing that. So, yeah. but I think sports and I unfortunately think... in this time, we're not doing a lot of sports. No, Ugh. no, we're cutting them out. You know, high school football's gone. Fall sports are gone. I know. And well, and they're doing zoom stuff, but every kid that I've, that I have coming in, yeah. well, I do have kids that are participating in club sports. Cause I know that, so I have, I have some. I have a couple swimmers that are in their club and they're doing it, and all the kids are showing up for that. And I have a couple of people that are doing ice skating, hockey, um, baseball, softball. But they're all the they're all the they're not schools. You know, they're the right. the clubs. They're the rec, the outside of that, those private ones that people are doing. So, I know those are happening. But yeah. outside, you know, you got the majority of people have the club, the club, not the club, but the school stuff, and obviously it's not happening. So. Um, there's tons of stuff being put online for, for the fall, but it's hard to, I understand it's really hard to have, here you are doing practice on Zoom with 40 other kids that, it's I get it. Not, yeah, there's going to be a lot of follow-up from it's this. Not, not this this is a big loss. Thing. You know, kids who are normally in athletics in the fall, you know, right. football players, um, it's going to be a big follow-up for them. 
Yeah. Because well, this is the structure. Well, in many cases, this right is the structure is they have. they're doing yeah. practice to get ready for the season, so on and yeah. so forth. And now they're talking about going to spring and talk about breaking a pattern and ritual for kids that are used to doing something that keeps them on on the good path, so to speak. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've had many a conversation. I've got a couple really good kids that are getting ready to, you know, go to D1 college for football. and Yeah, even all that stuff. Year, yeah, yeah devastated because yep. they're well they're looking forward that you know it's going to happen in the spring uh, and i i have that cringe of uh, have you okay. lived in new england in the spring i don't know well, <laughs> yeah. You, yeah you can play football whenever we play in snowstorms come on <laughs> we play in no, blizzards out of vinatieri come on yeah who's <laughs> just gonna plow those <laughs> fields risky. off we got great pictures of <laughs> snowstorms yep. galore Happened to be in Barbados during that game, but nonetheless. <laughs> I remember in, in Haverhill in 2015 where we had that 110 inches in about a month and a half. Oh, yeah. Haverhill Stadium was a, a turf stadium. Yeah. And that thing was going 24 hours a day because colleges were looking for fields to play. Fields to play. Right? Yeah. They'd, they'd clear off that, and you'd be going by 1 o'clock in the morning. Those lights are on, and teams are playing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See? So it will happen. Yeah. Just have to, you know, there will be lots of distance. I don't know. So. I think I got so upset at that mother because my my experience with my kids in McDonald's was we went once a year. We went, yeah. we were Irish. We went for shamrock shakes. Oh yeah, that was a big thing. It was one yeah. trip a year, and it, what, there was never a fight. There was never a we're not going to McDonald's. There was never that talk or discussion or negotiation. It was just you just kept driving. Yeah, you know, it was just so amazing to me that this woman's going. I can't stop my six year old from getting Happy Meals. Like, yeah, it, it, you can absolutely stop. Just stop going there. Yeah, I mean, it'd be one thing if it were the day with uh, you know. Postmates and you know meal deliveries and things like that, but the well, only reason the six-year-old gets the Happy Meals because you take them there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and so and, and before we sign off today, I mean it's similar. So I, I mean I have a client that has a similar issue. She doesn't indulge it, but she has the fight quite frequently with her child. Her child would rather eat chicken nuggets from McDonald's because they come from the they come from school or they come from dance or they come from whatever, and it, they have to pass by to go home. Yeah. And and I I feel the parents' pain because she will say like the uncomfortability of the amount of fighting that yeah. happens with this now seven she's seven now but oh I was gonna ask you how old is she she's seven now but this started this was like when she was four or five like right up to recently that um, the the uh, sitting with that pain of the fight because the child's relentless and I've been in the space when the child's been like losing her mind that she wasn't going to get it when right. the no was there it's just like we have chicken nuggets at home i don't like those chicken nuggets blah 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 blah, blah you know back and forth back and forth and i said to the parent i'm like disengage stop right stop negotiating this right, like exactly. it's enough like well then you're not going to eat what <laughs> it's like when we're the, not going there when a kid is doing that kids want attention right and they will take negative attention in the, in oh. the absence of positive exactly. attention so if they're harping at you from the back seat on this or beside you, yes. it's because they'll take the negative attention. That's Stop right. feeding it. Mm -hmm. the, the more you keep doing it, the more you're going to get. Exactly. Because you're rewarding that behavior with negative attention. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So disengage. It's like, again, if the kid said, I'm not going to brush my teeth, what are you, nuts? Yeah. No. We got, and it's, you laugh, you roll your eyes, it's a 50s parent's response, but we got food at home. Yeah. You know, yeah. and just keep, just matter of facts, because yeah. anything less than matter of fact 
opens the negotiation. And well, again, and you never want to... the pattern ne- for the possibility yeah. that the next yeah. time will be easier and the next time will be easier and finally we'll be going through the drive-thru every day. And you never negotiate with a kid because they're relentless. That's right. exactly the cycle she's gotten into. Exactly. Kids are relentless. Exactly. If you give them the opening to negotiate. Well, the pandemic helped her because yeah. <laughs> she, she has not been going there because the pandemic has not allowed that to happen yeah. for them. So that was a good thing. <laughs> so, All right. All right so... We are time out now to end the show. And so I guess my tip of the week or the day would be that um, be aware of your rituals and patterns. And are they helping you? Are they hindering you? Are they making you feel good or not? And and what can you do to make them different? Um, Be aware of what you can control. Yeah, As opposed to spending so much attention on what you can't control, be aware of what you can control. Exactly. Exactly. So, and next week, really quickly, Mm -hmm. next week... We're supposed to have a guest, Dr. Mike Calhoun. He's the orthopedic chiropractor here for sports um, in the local area. And nice. um, he's amazing. I love and chiropractors. he works with like mm-hmm. high-end elite athletes with me as well. And we are colleagues. And he's got a great um, practice. And he does great things with mental health and chiropractic care. And that you would be surprised that you probably didn't even know about. So he's going to come on. And we're going to talk about athleticism and chiropractic care and mental health and so on and so forth. So nice. come back and join us. And if you've missed any of my shows, you can see me on your daily game face on any of your most favorite podcast channels. Yep. And right <laughs> and, here on the Facebook page. Or right here on my Facebook page. Yep. And Lou, you have an awesome week. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.